Our first reading today is from the book of the prophet Isaiah. If you'd like to follow along, it's printed in your bulletin insert. It's the 43rd chapter, beginning with the 16th verse. In preparation to hear these words, let us pray. Holy God, by your Spirit, reveal the hidden things that we have not known that you have in store for us this day. Amen. Thus says our God, remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild animals will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches. For I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, so that they might declare my praise. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Thanks be to God.
Let us continue to listen for God's word to us today as we read the words from the Gospel of John, 12th chapter, beginning at verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, the home of Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. There they gave a dinner for him. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those at the table with him. Mary took a pound of costly perfume made of pure nard, anointed Jesus' feet, and wiped them with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, the one who was about to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He kept the common purse and used to steal what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone. She bought it so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Here ends our lesson from Scripture. Our Lenten theme this year has been Treasures in Darkness, a challenging image. Doug Lubbers was our teacher for three weeks earlier in Lent. He chose as his focus the Enneagram and the seven deadly sins plus two. Just the title could have thrown us into darkness, not being a congregation who loved to talk about sins, our own or anybody else's. That is not one of our favorite things at all. During the classes, which invited introspection, I reconnected with my type, which tends toward melancholy far too often. You'll have to guess the number. <laughs> Darkness, if you will. And so I search for treasure. I invite you to join with me in looking into the scriptures, seeing things old and new within these ancient words, these stories out of our heritage from which we are invited to draw strength for our own days. Isaiah is a very long book. Our Bible study group thinks about studying it but it has so many chapters, we are daunted. Chapter 43 comes from the second part of the book. The first part was preached before the Babylonian War, before the exile, when there was a chance to avoid it. The leaders did not respond to the prophet's preaching, and so exile happened. These verses reflect preaching maybe 40, 45 years on into exile, when the Israelites need again to be stirred to hope 
and action for an eventual return to Jerusalem. God is going to do a new thing. But as in all of God's new thing doing, God needs the cooperation of God's people to pull it off. This Isaiah preaches a whole lot of sermons about getting ready to go home for freedom, for return, for liberation. Come on, folks, we got to get ready. There is a mystery at the heart of this invitation. We sometimes think about the power of God, the creative power to bring forth life, new life, resurrected life. We want to stand in contemplation at that wonder, to stand in awe, to become observers. And then some prophet is hollering at us to get a move on. Isaiah says that there is a new highway here for us to walk safely on. There will be water aplenty, and all the scary animals will be kept at bay. Only one thing is missing. The people whom I formed for myself, says God. And what are these people to do? Declare God's praise as they walk that road. Make that journey. Go home all the while loving one another, loving their God, praising with each step. Imagine yourselves for us as though you were second-generation exiles, having made a way out of no way in Babylon, being settled, content, raising new families, making a comfortable living. Would you be ready to set off for the rubble of Jerusalem in the middle of a desert? Think Aleppo, perhaps. Would you trust God's new thing? John's Gospel gives us more to think about. Jesus is with his friends in Bethany, just outside the walls of the golden city, Jerusalem. It did get rebuilt. Some did go home. Lazarus is at table. Jesus' good friend, who had died but was raised, came out of the tomb when Jesus called his name. Mary and Martha, his sisters, are putting on the party for their beloved friend. Jesus has been talking a lot about death these days, his own, knowing that his ministry has angered a lot of people, that Rome has been nailing many a rabble-rouser to many a cross. Would his friends be able to hear his words? Know what is coming? 
Of the two sisters, Martha is usually pictured as the practical one. But it is Mary who has heard Jesus' words and begun to prepare for her womanly role at the time of the death of a loved one. The anointing of the body for burial. What would have been the mood of that party in Bethany? Remember how John began his story of Jesus at the wedding in Cana? That first sign when water became wine. So we can expect that there had been water jars here as well, that the feet of the guests would have been washed as they arrived, dusty from walking in sandals. As was their custom, they would have been barefoot, lounging on cushions to eat what was set before them. And there would be talk, perhaps even shared memories of that wedding, the signs, the feeding of the thousands, the crowds coming, and then leaving as Jesus began to talk about eating his body, drinking his blood. We are not yet at the Last Supper ritual, but this party is set less than a week before. Would they have assured one another of their trust, their love? Would Judas's taunt have rocked the room? Why did he bring up the poor? Deuteronomy is the fifth of the five books of the Torah, the books of the law for the Hebrew people, the core of their belief and practice in faith. Jesus' remarks about the poor being with us always echoes these old, old words from the 15th chapter. Since there will never cease to be some in need on the earth, I therefore command you, open your hand to the poor and needy neighbor in your land. Much has been speculated about Judas, his role as keeper of the purse, his motivation for the betrayal of Jesus his responsibility for his own actions, which set in motion the crucifixion and the resurrection. I suspect, as is true of all of us, his mind was awash with many thoughts and emotions as the end of this project was drawing near. Perhaps Judas had wanted Jesus to be a different kind of leader, less a prophet, and more king, taking charge right now. Let's focus on the trio. Mary, Judas, and Jesus at this one moment. Mary seems to have accepted Jesus' decision and makes preparation for the death of her much-loved rabbi extravagant preparations, kneeling at his feet, wiping them with her hair, filling the room with perfume. 
Her ministry was a quiet one, but could not be ignored. Judas makes a stink and calls attention to money. We can almost hear the 30 pieces of silver clinking into his bag at the moment when his betrayal will be sealed shortly. Jesus gazes at each of them in turn, loving each of them, even as he knows what is in each one's heart, still willing transformation and hope. Our God is mighty and vulnerable, calling us, each and all of us, to be ready for new possibilities, even as God knows how prone we are to the ruts we get ourselves into, stuck in the way we have always lived. The invitation offered this morning is to trust Jesus' gaze, the love God has for us just the way we are and for the possibility for change that is ever present. Some of us, and perhaps also Judas, get hooked by thinking we can end poverty in a decade or declare hunger at an end in our world. And then we dive into despair when we realize that these same hopes have been expressed in these same words every decade since records have been kept. Jesus' gaze tells us, yes, there will always be the poor among you. And you will always have the opportunity to open your heart to them and to be generous. The Bread for the World newsletter arrived this weekend telling me of their recent success in winning from the Congress the largest increase to the global nutrition account in almost a decade. Now, I had to read that sentence several times to get past my filter, which tells me Congress is doing nothing, certainly nothing good for the poor in this world. But God seems to be doing new things that go unnoticed. There is a Tuesday chant that includes the words, let not our own darkness conquer us. These words pierce my heart. Those of us who see the dark more easily than the light pay heed. God is still doing a new thing. Gerald Manley Hopkins' poem, God's Grandeur, begins with the words, the world is charged with the grandeur of God. And then, like moi, 
goes on to enumerate all the ways humankind misses the mark, but closes with hope with these words. Oh, morning at the brown brink eastward springs because the Holy Ghost over the bent world broods with warm breast and ah, bright wings. May it be so. Amen.